On March 21st, 2019, Tom Izzo caused heads to spin all over the sports world. If you don't know who Tom Izzo is, he is the head coach for the Michigan State basketball team. He stormed out onto the floor with a face that was beet red and made a straight line for Aaron Henry, one of his freshman basketball players. Izzo's passion was on fire as he pointed a guilty finger at Henry and chewed this player up one side and down the other for his lack of effort and poor decision-making out on the court. The cameras caught that, and the next day, the video of Izzo was all over the internet, ESPN, and people were either in favor of how he coached in that situation, or they were strongly disagreeing. Some thought it was borderline abusive. Others believed that leadership has become way too soft, and that passionate confrontation within the right context is appropriate. Well, after all the opinions were out on social media, the player, Aaron Henry, had an opportunity for his voice to be heard. And he said this, it wasn't like he, that is coach, it wasn't like he was going at me, but it was almost like he was helping me because I wasn't getting it through my head. Henry spoke at the media day and said this, I wasn't playing hard. He was just trying to get me to understand it. I can't be mad for it. I don't know if he knew I was prepared for it, but I guess he saw I was prepared for it. I'm going to accept everything he says because he doesn't want anything for me but the best. Well, then Aaron Henry's dad chimed in and said the following. He said, I've always been the type of parent where the best thing to teach a kid is just to be straight out with him because the world is not going to cut you any slack. You could drop dead in the middle of the street or wherever else, and they may step over you instead of running over you, but it's not going to stop. And the best way for you to deal with life is to find your groove, find your rhythm, and roll with the punches. I've told him, you can't get mad at coaches if the message is true. So James Henry doesn't want Izzo to back off Aaron. And he says this as well. James is Aaron's dad. He says, because sometimes he, that is Aaron, needs that tough love. Now, Izzo chimed in. Izzo said the following, Boy, if there is ever a time that I was proud of a kid, his next two weeks were phenomenal. That's okay, because that's the short term. His spring, summer, and fall have been off the charts as far as his work ethic. Now, the way Tom Izzo ripped into his player is very controversial. Was it too harsh? Whatever you think about that particular incident, I share that story simply to get us thinking. Not about basketball, but about the Christian community. And specifically, our passion when Christian brothers and sisters make wrong decisions and live contrary to God's word. The kinds of decisions that I'm talking about are those kinds that are life-altering, that lead them away from God into a place of unbelief. The kinds of perpetual decision-making that clearly contradicts what God has spoken to us in his word and falls into categories where the Bible would describe that lifestyle as very clearly non-Christian. 
what is our response? What is our passion? I don't think we should be like Tom Izzo. That's not what I'm saying. I don't think we should walk up to one another, point a guilty finger, and chew each other up one side and down the other. However, I think we do need to have a passion for those who are erring. So let me ask you this question. What is your passion for people in your life whom you have loved and spent time with and invested in for years, and yet they wander into spiritual error? What is your passion for that spouse who has sinfully, wrongfully abandoned you and is now intrigued by someone else? They're acting in a very non-Christian way. What is the passion that you have for that child whom you brought into the world and you loved for so many years, but now it seems as though your heart is under their heel? Or the friend whom you've sacrificed for and invested much of your time and energy You've discipled him or her. You've trusted him or her. But now that child or that friend is purposefully walking away into sin. Now, if we're not biblically proactive and leading our passions, our hurts and pains can easily turn to the passion of self-pity. And self-pity is a seed that can easily grow up into the weed of passionate bitterness And then bitterness starts to produce these thorns, and we aim to poke at people with acts of revenge or words of retaliation. What we see in the book of Galatians here is that Paul has a passion for believers who have erred. They are drifting and walking away from the truth. And Paul has been sprinkling his passion throughout the book for these believers whom he loves, and yet in this particular section, we probably see his passion most clearly on display for them. Let me show you how he's been passionate up to this point, just with a few verses. In Galatians 1, verse 6, the beginning of the letter, here's some passion. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. You can hear the passion there. In chapter 3, verse 1, he just addresses them directly and says this, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You can hear the passion in that passage. And then even in our section this morning, he uses this phrase, I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. It's as though Paul is saying, you guys might be a complete failure in the end. What I love about this particular passage this morning is that we do see another side of Paul. Some come at the Apostle Paul and say, man, he's a harsh guy. Especially when you read chap- like chapter 1 there. Um, or chapter 3. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Here you see his emotion on his sleeve. You see that he cares for them. So what is Paul's passion in this particular section? Paul's passion is that Christ would be fully developed in these people. His his passion, above all the hurts and above all the pains, is that Christ would be fully developed in these people. Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. 
He says this, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. That word entreat there in your ESV, some of you might have different translations. It's the word beg in different parts of the Bible. I want to show you a different passage where this word is used. Luke chapter 9, verses 38 to 40, where Jesus has just come down from a mountain. And he meets this man who's desperate. It says, behold, a man from the crowd cried out. And he says, teacher, speaking to Jesus, I beg you or I entreat you to look at my son. For he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Here you see this same term where a man is desperate. A man is pleading. He wants a result because of the situation that he's in. And that's where Paul is. Paul is looking at these dear people whom he has ministered to, many of them whom he has met when he took a journey up into this region called Galatia, he's become like a brother to them. And now he's coming to them and he's saying, I entreat you, I entreat you from where you are right now, I'm begging you, please, please become as I am. Well, at one level, that request could seem pretty self-serving for anyone. After all, don't we want everyone just to kind of fall in line with who we are? Life would be a lot easier if everybody did it my way. But at another level, Paul is expressing a very important biblical principle that should be true of all of us. Who is Paul? Well, Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says who he is. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now you see a a death theme. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who is Paul? Paul has become dead to himself and Christ has come alive in him. So when he says to the Galatians, become as I am, I entreat you, become like me, he's saying that out of a heart from Galatians 2.20 where he truly believes that he is following Christ. Now, look down at verse 19 because he addresses the believers again, and let's see if this thought is continuous with this section. It was my brothers earlier, now in verse 19 he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. There's the passion right there. You can sense it. I'm in the anguish of childbirth for you. Until what? Until Christ is formed in you. So here is Paul's passion for erring Christians. It's that Christ would be formed in them. He feels so desperate for these people that he uses that term of, I'm in childbirth. Now, only a select few in here have actually experienced the agony and anguish of childbirth. 
but it is filled with emotion. It's filled with passion. It's filled with a plea to move from one point to a conclusion. And that's where Paul is pleading with the Galatians. He just desperately wants them to be conformed into the image of Christ. We know in Romans 8:29 that this is God's plan for his people. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. So God's plan is for his people to be formed into images like Christ. And when folks who are formed into images like Christ, and I'm not saying folks who are perfect, see others say, I'm breaking out of this formation. I don't want that in my life. I'm going to drift over here and go a different direction. Man, it hurts. Some of you have been in this situation. You're saying about this person who has been next to you, maybe your whole life. You're walking away from that which is most important and that which is most secure. You're walking away from Christ. This is not the script that I've written for us. This is not what I anticipated. And there's a sense of feeling helpless. What can you do with all of the passions that you have for that person? Again, be careful that they don't turn to self-pity and bitterness and retaliation or revenge. What you do is you take all of that hurt and pain, and we're following Paul's example here, and what he's saying is, I'm taking all of that and I'm saying, I want you desperately to become like Christ. That's my focus. So above your hopes for the relationship to be restored with someone, above your hopes for that person to become a little bit more like adaptable into life again so that, so that fellowship can happen, above all of that needs to be a higher hope. And your high hope, our high hope for brothers and sisters who err is that Christ would be formed in them. So our plea, our prayer would be, God, not my will, but yours be done. May Christ be formed in them. Now, there's three just observations that I see in Paul's life here as he addresses the Galatians that I think would be helpful for us. Three observations. And the first one I see in verses 12 through 15. It's maybe the longest point that I've had in a sermon in the last year. So I'll give you time to write it down. Here's what I see in Paul in this section. It's hard to know if they are Christians but it might be right to acknowledge them as Christians. It might be hard to know if they are Christians, but it might be right to acknowledge them as Christians. Okay, so here you are in a situation where somebody close to you who has professed Christ has now walked or is drifting, and and you don't know exactly where they're at. You're going to start to feel a tension in your life of, how do I respond to them? Am I supposed to view them as Christ followers, or am I to view them as those who have completely forsaken Christ? Well, we'll see here that there are caveats for both, if you will. 
But I just want you to see that there is a tension, and that's why I've worded it this way. It's hard to know if they are Christians, but it might be right to acknowledge them as Christians. All right, so look at verse 12. Just notice how Paul addresses them. He uses the term brother. Um, He's speaking in a spiritual sense. And throughout the book, he uses this term over and over again. So he uses it a total of nine times. Let me just point it out to you a couple of other times. Galatians 5, verse 13. You've got your Bibles open, so you can just look across the page. For you were called to freedom, brothers, right there. Um, Galatians 6, verse 1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then look down just the very closing statement of the book, chapter 6, verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. All right, so Paul is thinking in terms of, I, I see them still as Christians. Then in verse 19, he uses the term children with them. Um, That's because his ministry to them, when he brought the gospel, he was like a spiritual father to them. They received Christ, they professed Christ, and he sees them now as spiritual children. Now, the way this book has been going up to this point, I've wondered at times, and maybe you have too, are these folks even Christians? I mean, we're we're talking about chapter 1, verse 6, where he said, I am astonished that you are so quickly turning to another gospel. Right there, if the book ended, we would say, what? How can you be a believer? Then he moves through the book and seems to put weight on the other side. Well, he does put weight, not just seems. He puts weight on the other side as he addresses them and still gives them this benefit, this perspective, if you will, from his angle that they are believers. In verse 11, Paul kind of goes to the other side. Verse 11 now, he says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And his point is that my gospel work among you, sharing Christ as the only means for salvation, might be pointless and without result. You might not be saved. And throughout the book... Paul shows us that he's not the kind of guy who says you can believe anything you want, live any way you want, and call yourself a Christian. So look over at chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. He says this, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. Okay, that that was the works-based salvation that he's addressing in the original context. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now listen to this next phrase. You are severed from Christ. Boom. Statement. Done. I hear Paul saying, if you choose this path, you're not a Christian. All right, look down at chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Boom. Statement. 
So I'm coming to this, and I'm like, Paul, you seem to be speaking out of both sides of your mouth as you address these folks as brothers and children repeatedly throughout the book, and yet you have these bombs that you drop over here saying, if you are in this boat, you are severed from Christ, and you don't inherit the kingdom of God. What I appreciate is the tension that's here. I appreciate that we are called now to live inside this tension with erring brothers. Let's go back to the other side. Chapter 4, verse 9. But now, he's speaking to the Galatians again, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again? He's back to it again. You're known by God which would mean you're in relationship with God. The tension that is present even in Paul's writings is instructive for us. That when we see erring Christians, we can think of them perhaps as Christians for at least a time. There will be times when someone is clearly not attached to Christ, where they will not acknowledge Christ as Lord They're severed from Jesus. But there are times where we just don't know where folks are in their faith. And you can, for a season of time, relate to them, speak to them as though they are believers. Let me just comment on the verses that Paul has as he follows this up. Verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Okay, so he's recounting his history and his relationship with them. Uh, People don't know exactly what this ailment was. Paul doesn't go into detail. There's a lot of speculation, so we'll just leave it at that. We just know that he was sick when he came to them. And in verses 14 and 15, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, what I love here about this is he's looking back on their relationship. If you will, he's looking back on the good times that they've had. There was a spiritual unity that took place. But then he goes on, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have in the past gouged out your eyes and given them to me. The specifics, again, of these things, there's a lot of speculation. I'll leave that for you to take your study Bible and go into that of what this means with him gouging out his eyes. Perhaps he had an eye disease. Perhaps it's kind of like hyperbole on issues. But what we do know is that the relationship between the church and Paul was meaningful. And it was characterized by their care and acceptance of Paul. And again, this has to be the part that hurts. There are those meaningful times in the past, and you're left asking the question, well, what has become of them when they walk away from Christ and our Christian community? So we live in this tension. I don't know where the line is exactly. I don't know that we need to know where the line is exactly. Jesus said that if someone is in a constant state of error, you can treat them. You, you, you relate to them as a tax collector and a Gentile. You can relate to them as a non-believer. We don't know the heart of them. What's the best passion, though, when you're living in that tension? The best passion is, I just want Christ to be formed in them. I'm going to pray that Christ would be formed in them. 
All right, a second observation. A second observation. It's right to warn erring Christians of what they don't see. It's right to warn erring Christians of what they don't see. And you can do this with two uh, particular steps here. Number one is communicate your motive to them. Communicate your motive to them. Look in verse 16. Paul says this, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And it's obviously a rhetorical question. He's not saying I've tried to become your enemy. But the question shows us that Paul is just saying, here's my motive. My, my motive for you is, is not to stand back and, and throw darts at you for where you're at. My motive is simply to share the truth. You're deceived right now. And more than anything, I want you to see the truth of who Christ is. That's my motive. So that's why we, as a church, we have a membership covenant that we're committed to, which says we must love, serve, exhort, and receive admonition from one another. It's actually an act of love to tell professing brothers and sisters in Christ that they need to turn from sin. And it can be hard because you feel as though the relationship might be risked. They might receive it wrongly and think of you now as an enemy and break things off. But this is where you trust the Spirit of God to do the work that he's going to perform in their hearts, and you communicate your motive to them. I'm not trying to be your enemy. I'm simply trying to point you to the truth. There's a second step that we see here. Communicate your concern for them. He says here in the text that they, that is the false teachers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that they make, may make much, that you may make much of them. So the false teachers wanted to shut them out of the church and bring them over, if you will, to their group. Their goal was to build a crowd of followers. And Paul's saying, I'm just concerned for you to be going in that direction because it's shutting you out from the truth. Now, for some of you, this strikes very close to home. Um, you've had children whom you've brought to Christ along the way, and you're like a spiritual father. You've shared with them about Christ offering the forgiveness of sins. They've received Christ as their Savior. They've professed him. They go into their adult years, and you see them making decisions that are erring away from Christ. And before long, they are saying things like, I've completely deconstructed my faith. I am embracing this identity for myself. And they're masked by deceit. And as a parent, you're wanting to come along to them and say, son, daughter, I'm not your enemy, but here's my motive. I just want to point you back to the truth. And here's the truth that, that you're erring into sin and you're believing a lie. And the challenges grow with that. If you're not going to accept me for who I am, then you're my enemy. Paul continually communicates truth, but you can see that he's communicating his concern for them over and over again. 
And I just want to encourage you, if you find yourself in that situation, parents, we go back to Paul's passion over all of this. Paul's ultimate passion is that they won't clean up their lives so that he is pleased with things. His ultimate passion for them in their life is that there would be a straight line that goes from their heart to Christ. And so your plea, your heart can be, it's not about me. It's not about even me getting the relationship back with them. It's about Christ being formed in them. The greatest hope for my child or the greatest hope for that person who is in my life is not me. The greatest hope is that Christ would be formed in them. There's a third observation that I see in Paul's approach here. Third is affirm your love for erring Christians. Affirm your love for erring Christians. You see this in verses 19 through 20. He doesn't use the word love, but you see the description of it. He says, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You know that disagreement typically creates space and distance. Nobody wants to talk to one another. The person feels as though you've rejected them. But who's rushing the middle here? Paul is rushing the middle. Paul is moving towards them. And he's saying, man, I wish that I could be with you. Jude, verses 20 to 23, says this. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who... Who doubt. Have mercy on those who are waving, wavering. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And Jude's point is, as people walk away from the faith, there's definitely pain that happens there. But don't let your heart be given over to bitterness. Treat them with mercy. Go after them with mercy. I want to close the sermon by just reading from a guy by the name of John Bloom. He's written about this on a website called Desiring God. He says this, Since the church's earliest days, some have endured faith crises, And some have been harmed by sinful cultural influences. Some have questioned traditional doctrines and church authorities. And some have departed the faith. And to each person, whatever their struggle, we are called to extend the grace of Christ. What does that mean? Well, the grace of Christ will have various manifestations and measures in various contexts. For as we see in the New Testament, grace comes in many forms. Sometimes it's tender, and sometimes it's tough. We are to give grace in whatever way fits the occasion, which means what form of grace a particular struggler needs is an issue of prayerful discernment. But it's helpful to keep in mind that a deconstructing Christian is often someone in significant pain. Anyone, like me, who has gone through a faith crisis or multiple ones, knows that it's not some abstract academic exercise. 
questioning our foundational beliefs and wrestling with doubts about them often feels like we're being, well, in Francis Schaeffer's words, torn to pieces. If you read more in-depth about Schaeffer's faith crisis and reconstruction process, you will see how disturbing, disorienting, and frightening it can be to experience or to watch a loved one experience. So as we seek to extend the grace of Christ to someone experiencing deconstruction, however passively or actively, however privately or publicly, it will be important to press in carefully, ask clarifying questions, and listen well to inform how we do or do not respond so that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. I appreciate that because he approaches this situation and says, it's not a, you know, one formula fits every situation. And as believers here, and for those of you who are watching this morning, I think as we are committed to being a local church of brothers and sisters following Christ, we have seen, we are seeing, and we will continue to see error in the lives of one another. And it's our Christian responsibility not to step back and just let space go by, nor is it our responsibility to just kind of put blindfolds on it and ignore it. That's certainly not what Paul is doing. That would be the easy route going forward. It's just to pretend like it's not happening. Hey, how you doing on Sunday morning? Good, good. Yeah, I know life is a mess, but we're not going to talk about it. That's what we want to do with it. And here what we see Paul coming along is like Izzo, and not saying that Izzo's approach is, we got to address it. And as a local church with a membership covenant, we're saying, okay, this is where we are. We come alongside of one another, and God uses the church for his purposes to accomplish his end in life. And so we walk away from here saying, yes, we should have a passion. And what is that passion? That passion is ultimately that Christ would be formed in each one of us. Let's have the right passion for those who are erring, that Christ would be formed in them, and praying that Christ is continually formed in us. Let's pray.